Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. On Thursday, April 11th, shortly after 11pm, a black Columbia University student named Alexander McNabb walked through the gates of Barnard College, the undergraduate all-women's school at Columbia, after ignoring a security guard's request to show his student ID. In search of a midnight snack, McNabb got all the way to the library canteen before a public safety officer confronted him and asked for his ID a second time, a request McNabb once again refused. What I just read was the opening paragraph of Coleman Hughes' widely read Quillette article, Cowardice at Columbia. In that column, Hughes, who is both a Columbia undergraduate student and a regular Quillette columnist, argues that the security guards who confronted McNabb at Columbia were simply doing their job. Yet the entire episode has been presented as an example of racism on campus. On Tuesday, Coleman spoke to me on the phone about his article and the fallout to the McNabb incident. Here are excerpts from that conversation. Can you give us a sense of the urban geography here? Uh, Barnard is part of Columbia. Uh, Is it on the same campus? Yeah, they're considered the same campus. They're across the street from each other, and this, the street that separates them is Broadway. So you have to cross Broadway to get from Barnard to Columbia or vice versa. But they're very integrated. So two of my classes this term are on Barnard's campus, even though I'm a Columbia student, and that's pretty typical. And Barnard is a woman's college? Yes. So the building we're talking about here, is it typically reserved just for women? The library is open to all Columbia students. So that will include men. In terms of campus safety, I imagine that, as at most campuses, there there's a focus on, on keeping women safe. Could you give us some detail about how that works in a place like New York, where uh, obviously it's a dense urban environment? Uh, have there been concerns or incidents in the past? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I live with two Barnard women, both of whom independently have a story of a man following them home at night and them knowing that they can go through the Barnard gates and that man will not be able to follow them because the security guard at the gate will ID that man and bounce him if he doesn't have a Columbia student ID. So that's, you know, every woman has a story like this, virtually every woman, certainly in New York where there's 8 million people, but several million more on any given day. And some percentage of those men, a subset of men, will always be creeps. Part of what this policy at the Barnard case serves to do is to give Barnard women a kind of safety zone in in those cases, which don't happen often, but they don't have to happen often for them to really potentially ruin your college experience. And and just to be clear, the Barnard Gates you're talking about, are, are those the Barnard Gates that this incident took place at? Correct. Could you talk a little bit about the protagonist here, this uh, this guy named Alexander McNabb? You actually present a fairly nuanced view of who he is in your column. 
the reason I take that line on him rather than a totally cynical one is because I know two people who know him and they say he's a nice guy, uh, which I don't doubt. And uh, he's also a pretty good writer. If you, he, he's written many, many pieces for the Columbia student newspaper, the spectator and for the I magazine, the, the most prominent magazine on campus. And he is very much a writer in the anti-racist mold. He has written multiple experiences about being profiled in the past, about his trials and tribulations as a black man in America. And specifically on Columbia's campus, he writes a lot about the relationship between Columbia and surrounding Harlem neighborhood and what that means vis-a-vis his blackness. And it's all well-written. I happen to as listeners to this podcast know, take a very different line on uh, the primacy of race in one's identity. But, uh, you know, what, what leads me to believe that he's more of an honest radical than a cynical Jesse Smollett type is that he's, you know, he's written these things and, you know, he, he's, a, he's a careful writer and I know people who know him. So I think it's much more likely that he's someone who genuinely thinks he sees racism where it doesn't exist rather than someone who is just cynically looking for his 10 seconds of stardom. We've all been in situations where we get our backup right at the beginning and it sets off a cascade of, of defensiveness and maybe we make bad decisions. Is it possible that in this case, he might've been defensive in that first few seconds and then he didn't want to back down. I'm yeah, that that's my guess for what happened. I think he breezed through those gates and you know, I, I don't think that he was really, this is my interpretation because he's been very inconsistent in his story. First, he said that you know, in the video, he said he was unaware that the policy existed. And, and this is the policy of universal carding uh, after a certain time. That's right. Yeah, universal carding after 11 p.m. So first he said he was unaware that the policy existed. You know, then he said in, in an interview with the Columbia newspaper, he was aware that the policy existed and was aware that it was implemented in a racist manner, which is to say white students don't always get carded, but black students do. Uh, then on Don Lemon, he said he himself had never been carded ever, and not only that, no one he knows has ever been carded. So try to reconcile all of those claims. Doesn't make any sense. If he'd never seen anyone get carded, how did he see it? How did he how did he see the policy implemented in a racist manner? But what's your experience of being carded or not carded? Um, I've always been carded, which would not prove anything because I'm black. My blonde, blue-eyed, all-American looking roommate who I won't name, who goes to Barnard, has been carded every time she's gone through. My friend Morgan Raum, who wrote a piece for the Columbia Beacon at this event, who is also white, who is Jewish, uh, has been carded every time she's gone in. And she's a senior. So four years of getting carded every time past 11. Someone just emailed me who's a white guy who said one time he breezed through, he was listening to music and he didn't hear the security guard and they chased him down to get his ID. So. Uh, it's it's complete BS. Uh, no one has no one has seriously provided evidence for the claim that it's enforced in a racist manner. And by the way, the majority of security guards at that gate are black. 
I don't have stats on that, but I, I challenge anyone to just come to Barnard, walk through that gate for five or six days in a row and tell me that the majority of the, the security guards aren't black or Hispanic. So it's LA. I, I, it really strains credulity to say that this is a, uh, this is something racist, which gets to what you were saying before. I do think she's kind of making it up on the fly. I think he got himself into a situation. I, I think there's a, there, there's some, there's a kind of confirmation bias in an ideological worldview that he had to begin with. But then he got himself into the situation where he was claiming it, it was racism before he had any evidence that it was. And then I think he just doubled down and tripled down on it. So when I read your column, uh, which is, of course, at the Quillette website, I was struck by the fact that, and this is unusual for you, you get kind of angry toward the end of the column, but it strikes me that your anger is directed, not at this guy, but it's directed at this social panic response among members of the community. Yeah, I, I'm definitely angry for many reasons. One is because I happen to know details about this particular case because I'm on this campus that are being reported completely misleadingly in the New York Times and the Washington Post. The way that this story has gotten exported to the national media has been absolutely skewed and dishonest. Um, that's one reason I'm angry. The, the second reason I'm angry is because, you know, I talked to my friend who talked to one of the public safety officers, one of the six public safety officers who was put on leave pending an investigation. And they were talking to this officer and this person broke down in tears talking about this event. So these are, these are just nameless victims in the never ending war on racism. But these are actual people. When you say public safety officers, basically you mean security guards who probably aren't getting paid that much? That's right. They don't uh, carry guns. They're not police. They're the first people to uh, go to the scene of a potential altercation when they get called. So you know, six of them have been put on paid leave, essentially scapegoated by administrators who have been cowed by a handful of very vocal student protesters and who have now scapegoated these public safety officers for implementing a policy that administrators themselves put in place. And it's a good policy, by the way. Like Four different all-progressive left-wing Barnard women have come up to me privately and say, said that they agreed with my Facebook post on this incident. None of them liked the post. So there's a kind of spiral of silence thing happening where... So, the, so you're saying none, none of them clicked like on the post. That's right. Um, but they read it, they read it and came up to me privately and agreed. So there's a kind of spiral of silence phenomenon happening as well. And that also makes me angry because there, there's a picture that's forming that there's some kind of consensus that uh, the McNabb incident was racist and that we really need to look into public safety. But that's just not true. Have you gotten any blowback for expressing opinions on this issue? Uh, my one black supremacist friend who thinks I'm a sellout called me a sellout again, but that's okay. <laughs> Nothing else is new. But my friend Morgan Raum, who wrote a piece for the Columbia Beacon, taking a similar line uh, to the one I, I wrote, is receiving much more blowback. I've seen some people you know, Snapchatting extra excerpts from her articles and sending them around and naming her. And so she's got, but she happens to be white. And I think that's probably 
the most relevant variable, but she also published in a campus newspaper. The truth is people who hate Colette or who would hate Colette who go to Columbia don't read Colette. We have this weird situation here where usually when we talk about people's rights clashing, there's a culture war aspect to it. But what's interesting about this episode is the the objectives of play are all progressive objectives. Anti-racism, keeping women safe, obviously. Is there any actual policy lesson here that you can see? Actually, no, because I don't think anything went wrong in the McNabb incident. You, you you might say, so if something had gone wrong, which is plausible, of course, security guards aren't perfect, there could be a real racist incident in the future. I'm, you know, such things happen. Then you would be faced with a kind of trade-off, which is do we reform this policy, making women slightly less safe and thereby preventing the occasional racial profiling incident? Or do we swallow the racial profiling in an effort to keep women more safe. And then, and then reasonable, people, reasonable people could probably disagree about which of those trade-offs is, is most desirable. With this incident, this shouldn't even change our calculus because nothing went wrong. Nothing went wrong. What happened is that an unknown man walked into campus, the security guard yelled after him, and he ignored uh, that security guard. The security guard got on the walkie-talkie and said, unknown man walked into Barnard's campus refusing to show ID. And then for all they knew, that could be the next school shooter, or it could be a man following a woman home at night. So they sent five officers to the scene, which later got criticized as excessive. But again, security security lacks clairvoyance, so they don't know in advance that that won't be the next Adam Lanza. So, uh, you know, he, this person, Alec Manab, started yelling in a library in the middle of the night that it was racism, and they restrained him for 20 seconds, at which point he produced his ID. They verified that it was a student ID, and then that was it. They left him alone. They did exactly what they should have done, right? So for me, that this doesn't change the policy calculation. This was an example of the policy done right. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about what it's like to be on a campus in the middle of a big city. Uh, A lot of these stories we hear about liberal colleges, they might take place in, I don't know, uh, Sarah Lawrence or, or Bard or Amherst, these small, somewhat idyllic enclaves of education that aren't embedded in a big city. How much does that that urban geography affect the way people interact politically at Columbia compared to to other liberal universities and colleges that are in much different parts of the United States? I've always suspected that Columbia being in the middle of New York has had a slightly de-radicalizing influence on the student body. I couldn't necessarily back that up with anything more than intuition, but... Uh, I, I just always suspected that when you're in a city like New York and you're going to different neighborhoods and occasionally meeting crazy people and going on the subway and seeing how things can go terribly wrong on the subway, even if it's only rarely, you know, one in 50 subway rides, something really weird happens, like someone throws up or a, a huge guy starts groping a woman in front of you or a guy starts masturbating, like all of those things 
are a kind of, at least when it comes to one's attitude towards police and public safety and the necessity of them and naive ideas like prison abolition, I've I've always assumed that that's kind of a de-radicalizing force. Nevertheless, people just a few days ago were chanting, no cops on my campus, no cops on my campus, fuck these racist police. So it clearly hasn't de-radicalized enough. You talked about the national media getting the story wrong. New York Times, Washington Post, have they just flat out lied about what happened uh, here at Columbia, or were there good faith errors in the reporting? They didn't lie. It was the way that they overhumanized Alex McNabb and not at all the officers. So in the Washington Post article, it basically starts with saying, all Alexander McNabb wanted was to get a snack. Little did he know he was in for racism. It's that kind of tone that's dripping throughout the whole piece that Like, if you only read that, it would be impossible not to come away from this incident thinking that it was a gross example of racism. What they don't mention, for example, is the fact that he contradicted himself in multiple ways on his story. So it's what they leave out and what they overly dramatize that gives you a false picture without any specific claims being false. But is it the case that when we talk about police officers or security guards, they become sort of imperial stormtroopers in uniform who are out to smash everybody under their jackboot? Like, is there a certain stereotype now of of anybody in uniform where when a narrative like this gets told, they can't win? And maybe reporters just naturally fall into that stereotype. I, I think that's a really, really good point. And it's, it's a double-edged sword, though, because the reason public safety officers and police officers wear the uniforms to project authority, and it actually does work. Like, public safety officers are usually just they have civilian powers, but, they, but they're wearing the uniform, which is one reason that psychologically people are more inclined to obey them, which is a good thing because people should obey them because they keep us safe. But at the same time, having that uniform marks you as, yeah, the, the imperial stormtrooper archetype. You don't care about the people. You're cruel. You, you're liable to abuse your power etc. So it, it's, I'm not sure how that can be avo- avoided other than to at least make some small attempt in reporting on this issue to humanize the cops as well, rather than uh, doing go, going into the entire sob story, or the alleged sob story of Alexander McNabb, and then just, as you said, painting the cops as kind of modern day imperial stormtroopers. What's going to happen to these six officers? Campus has ordered an independent investigation into the incident, which is rich to me because they've also already come to the conclusion that it was racist. But it makes no sense to order an, an outside investigation of an incident and then also send emails to the entire student body in which you have already concluded that the incident is racism. If you've already come to your conclusion, why order the outside investigation? Uh, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. I, you know, with this investigation, it's not clear that there's very much to find out that we don't already know. You know, it, it's mainly cowardice 
and largely white administrators terrified of being called racist. The investigation isn't going to be conducted by, like, the critical race theory department or something like that, right? No. I mean, I assume so. All, all, all I've read is that it's going to be, quote-unquote, independent investigators. Coleman, you've been writing for Quillette for a little while now. Uh, you're still only a junior in college. Uh, I guess a year from now, you'll be going out into the wide world. There is this sense that people are protected in university, and then they go off into the world, and they become more sophisticated, and they're exposed to the real world and such. But what's interesting about you, and I suppose a lot of intellectuals these days, is that many of the controversies and ideas they're writing about are actually rooted in campus culture. And to some extent, there's no better place to do reporting on the world of ideas and the world of these controversies than the campus itself. What's your plan for when you graduate? I don't really have much of a plan for when I graduate. But I think you're right to point out that the ideas that are active on campuses seep out a few years later. And maybe not even, you know, the time lag with, with the internet now might even be shorter. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Quillette podcast. Yeah, anytime. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.